All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from YouTube. Lots of gems, lots of Bruce Lee's forearms, and lots of, yo, bro, do you even freestyle on the dummy like Smacky Chan? Let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. Yo, Mikey, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Seagong. How you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you. See you um, too. So we're getting excited because in about one month from now, we're going to be going to Hong Kong. Um, however, when this actual episode comes out, we may already be in Hong Kong or that <laughs> might just be one week out. Well, I always need to remind myself not to be like, hey, in one month, we're going to do this because we record these episodes in advance unless it's a live episode. These things are, well... When we're good, they're about a month in advance. When we are slacking, they're a week in advance. <laughs> uh, but either way, they're almost—they're never—they're never totally up to date, right? Uh, yeah, we have our ultimate Hong Kong kung fu tour. I uh, have, including me and the—we have twenty-five people on this tour. Damn. Yeah, it's gonna be crazy. It's gonna be wild. Uh, I'm very excited because I haven't been uh, to Hong Kong since uh, before the virus of unknown origins uh, back in 2019. Wow. So it'll be nice to go back after such a long time and, uh, you know, visit with old friends and do some Kung Fu stuff and, uh, you know, get out of the States for a little bit. Well, this so. is going to be my first time, so I am uber excited. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you're really going to have a chance to see a lot and... Uh, uh, witness a lot of things that I think, you know, I dare say, I mean, this will be my 27th trip to Hong Kong. And I think uh, I can occasionally show some things that even some of the locals might not know about. I remember, and I may have said this on a previous episode, but uh, the daughter of uh, my uh, good late friend, Siva Chanchi, man, her name is Judy. And she grew up in an area of uh, Kowloon called Dai Gok Choi. And uh, which is right next to Samsoipo, right next to Mong Kok. It's, it's just general part of Kowloon over there and very close to where uh, Grandmaster Yip Man started teaching, where the restaurant union is. And so I, I'll never forget one day um, I was at Chan Zivu's house and it was time to go. And Judy, she's always so kind, even though like I'm a city kid and I know Hong Kong really well. She's like, oh, let me walk you to the MTR station. Right. It's like, you know, I'm a big boy. I know where they are. But she's big. I'm like, you know, OK, fine. So, so she, you know, we go out and we walk. And, and as soon as we leave Chan Zivu's place, you know, we, we walk just half a block. And I go, oh, that's the Kowloon funeral home. I go, I didn't realize it was so close to where you live. And she's like. Why, why is this just a funeral home? Is that a big deal? I'm like, that's where Bruce Lee's funeral was. And she was like, really? I grew up here and I didn't know that. <laughs> and she's also my age. She's not someone yeah. who's like, like in her early 20s or something, right? So it, it, it's funny because I'm sure that there's like a, a real, someone who's a real geek about New York and could probably come and tell me, oh, you're like, you know that building across the street from you was like, part of like some horrific crime in the 1930s and it was like a big scandal back then right but like when you're local you really don't pay a lot of attention to those things right so sometimes it takes this like outsider who has a fondness for it to actually like even give a shit about any of those things right absolutely and i'm definitely the guy who gives a shit about a lot of stuff in hong kong <laughs> um but anyway before we get started i just wanted to say the best way to support the kung fu genius is on patreon patreon.com slash the kung fu genius for as little as five dollars a month you 
you can get episodes early, like usually one, two, three, three days if we're good, uh, early. And uh, there's a bunch of other little goodies I throw on there, like the Instagram subscriber reels, so you don't have to subscribe to me on Instagram and Patreon. If you go to Patreon, you kind of get everything. And for higher levels of support, there are other little goodies and things like that that we have for you guys, uh, including translations of Grandmaster Yip Man's interviews and things like that. So, um, yeah, the people always ask how they can support us. And, uh, well, you can look at the links below. I have a bunch of books and things like that. That's the easiest way to support. But uh, Patreon is the way to go. Um, I would love for this uh, YouTube channel to be so big that the YouTube revenue coming in is worth anything. But, you know, it's it's barely coffee money every month that we get from YouTube. So let's just say put down the avocado toast just once a month. <laughs> And sign up to us. You'll the be avocado fun. toast. <laughs> yes. So, Mikey, what do you got for me today? Oh, what do I have for you today? Hey, everyone. Just want to let you know Wing Chun Illustrated is now offering a paperback edition through Amazon, reaching a larger global market. And no, they're not ditching the glossy magazine edition through MagCloud. You can now simply choose the version of this magazine you prefer and the one with the cheapest shipping wherever you live. Order your copy of Wing Chun Illustrated today across 12 Amazon marketplaces with free shipping for Prime members. Go and check that out. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's start off with something a bit fun. I think. I think this could be an interesting one for you. At Whole Cosmos, do you freestyle the Muk Yan Jong after mastering all the sets? Like a jazz musician jamming? I just learned set five. Cool. Uh, that's a great question. And I think it's a question that deserves some attention because whenever the wooden dummy is shown, let's say, in popular culture, like um, Rumble the Bronx with Jackie Chan or Wheels on Meals or, you know, a number of Hong Kong films where people kind of hit the wooden dummy, uh, for better or worse. People basically freestyle on it. And I think that that's something that people kind of dig. Even if you, I think even in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, uh, Jason Scott Lee goes on the wooden dummy and, you know, doing some punches and this or that or whatever. And there's kind of an allure to uh, the wooden dummy as kind of a, a training device that kind of mimics a sparring partner, of course, a dead sparring partner that doesn't move. Uh, so the idea of going up to it and, you know, hitting it and making the dummy rattle. And, you know, in the case of Rumble in the Bronx, they they put a bunch of dust in the pad. So every time Jackie Chan hits it, there's like this poof of dust, which is a very common trick in Hong Kong cinema uh, to add effect of the power. You know, I think a lot of people, their first introduction, or I shouldn't say a lot of people say people our age or younger, their first introduction to a wooden dummy is probably from a movie. And even oh, even in The Last Dragon, at the very beginning where his master's kind of testing him out, he even like goes onto the wooden dummy and does a bunch of moves and stuff like that. So I think most people, their first uh, introduction to the wooden dummy is someone usually an actor going up to that thing and you know rattling off a bunch of movements and wow that looks really really cool and then if that has piqued your interest you will maybe at some point decide to seek out Wing Chun training and find out well this is a Wing Chun dummy and I want to learn Wing Chun so I can do that thing that I saw Jackie or Taimak or you know any other host of films where they showcase the wind I want to do that and then you go to a legitimate Wing Chun school, and then it's like, uh, yeah, no, you're going to have to stand in this stance and learn this form called the Siunim Tao first. <laughs> and you're just going to stand there and do these basic movements, right? And then maybe learn some single arm chi sao, some basic punches. And then once you've put in the time in with those basics, 
cool, now you're going to learn another form called the chum cue, where now you're allowed to turn and step and kick in place. And you're like, cool, I still want to learn the wooden dummy though, right? And then, uh, you know, then you learn double arm cheese out, and then you learn you know, all these reactions and how to do this and how to do that. And then, wow, you learn the ultra advanced and secretive bugey form, right? And now you can do these funky looking elbows and bowing at the end of the form and do all this weird stuff, right? And then if you're lucky and you're stuck with it, your sifu will put you in front of the wooden dummy and they put you in front of the wooden dummy and it's move one, move two, <laughs> move three. And you're thinking, wow, I thought I was going to go on this thing, this Jackie Chan it on the first day. And it's not that way. All right. So if you learn classical Wing Chun, uh, I don't like to use the word traditional Wing Chun because William Chang has kind of hijacked that term, right? Traditional Wing Chun or classical Wing Chun for me just means something that has not been overly modified or mixed or turned into a hybrid. Like Jeet Kune Do obviously could not be considered classical Wing Chun. It's not a classical martial art in any way uh, to begin with. But like, I also just mean people who use the wooden dummy uh, as a training tool, just as something to like hit and spar with, right? These are not people who are really doing something Wing Chun based. It's, they're not doing what the Wing Chun progression on the dummy is supposed to be. So I think part of the problem when, and it's a great question, but I think part of the problem is perspective. Because since most people, myself included, uh, the first time I saw someone smacking a wooden dummy was The Last Dragon. This, then I had seen photos of Bruce Lee on the wooden dummy, but those are photos, so I don't know what he was actually, you don't know, like, you see the positions, but you don't know, is he moving around fast? Is he just doing one thing at a time? And then the second time I think I saw uh, the wooden dummy used was in No Retreat, No Surrender uh, by Kurt McKinney, all right? Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, protagonist of that, which, by the way, I just started following him on Instagram. He's uh, still, he used to be, you know, after he did those martial arts uh, films, or that martial art film, he be, he became a soap star in the States. What? On Guiding Light. Wow. And and then kind of didn't do too much, but I, his Instagram, he's only got like a few thousand followers. I mean, like, hey guys, if you're into Bruce Lee and Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do and all this stuff, go follow Kurt McKinney, all right? He was awesome in No Retreat, No Surrender, right? Uh, so I think... I saw Taimak was probably the first person I saw on the dummy. Then I saw photos of Bruce Lee in the Bruce Lee Fighting Method books. Uh, then it was probably Kurt McKinney in No Retreat, No Surrender. And then after that, it was probably Jason Scott Lee in Dragon the Bruce Lee Story. Because uh, all three or all four of those films predate or the books predate my starting Wing Chun. So I also had this idea that you go up to the dummy and you, brrr, you just rattle off a bunch of stuff. And, oh, that's what I want to learn, right? Because... People want to see the thing that looked cool and they want to do the thing that looks cool. And the idea of what is even the purpose of this training device and what are the transferable skills you're going to get from it is a completely separate issue from going up to it and rattling off a bunch of cool looking <laughs> shit, right? <laughs> and the funny thing is after having done Wing Chun for the length of time that I have, I've gone back and watched some of that stuff and it did not have the shine that it did <laughs> when I first saw it. Uh, I look. I, I, I watched The Last Dragon, which is a film that I still love, and I saw what Timok did on the dummy, and it was complete garbage. It was it was total nonsense, right? Uh, the Jason Scott Lee film I haven't rewatched, but uh, the Rumble in the Bronx is okay. It's 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 a little more stylized, but it is kind of Hong Kong. Um, 
no retreat, no surrender. As much as I love that movie, what Kurt McKinney did on the wooden dummy did did not hold up. Uh, it, it, was, it was he even did because he had a spinning wooden dummy, which is like the bane of my existence. It's like no, 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 no. He the, and it was like, yeah, bro. But if it, if it has a spinning base, you can train your reactions. It's not a reaction if you hit that thing that way and you know it's going to spin around the other way. What is the reaction that your opponent always attacks you right, left, right, left, right, left? <laughs> like, th- 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 there is no special reaction. As a matter of fact, if you don't hit the dummy hard enough, you're waiting for that thing to spin around. Uh, so it's no. I mean, the, the point is that it should be fixed because you should you almost want to imagine that the wooden dummy might represent, among other things, an opponent that is very strong and sturdy. So rather than, you know, this whole idea like, oh, the wooden dummy is about conditioning my forearms. Look, all right. How many fights have you seen that were lost because someone didn't had inadequate forearm conditioning? Yes, people break their arms from kicks all the time, but I don't, they don't care how hard you hit the wooden dummy. You take a roundhouse kick from Crow Cop and put your forearm like this, you're going to break your arm, all right? No one has ever lost. No one's ever said like, Yo, why, why did so-and-so lose that fight? Man, they just didn't have the forearm conditioning. Like, that, that has never happened. Yeah, but you can break your arm in a fight, but that doesn't mean that the problem was forearm conditioning. The problem was probably how you chose to block or stop the thing that was coming at you, right? So this idea that the main thing of the wooden dummy is to condition your forearms is idiotic. This is only, um, this is only something that can be said by someone who doesn't every now and again put on gloves and spar with someone right uh if you if you get a bruise on your forearm and that's all you got from the end of the fight you can consider yourself lucky right now i'm not saying that hitting the wooden dummy for years and years and years doesn't develop or to a certain degree desensitize part of your forearms to taking that kind of pain not from feeling or anything like that but just you can withstand hitting the wooden dummy a lot harder the longer you've done it but that is a tertiary or peripheral benefit of doing the wooden dummy i wouldn't say like yo why do wing chun people train the wooden yo to condition our forearms bro wing chun is a style an elastic soft style that tries not to fight opponents force on force so why do you do the wooden dummy to make our straw our forearms unbeatable it's like that doesn't really match with what the whole concept of the style is right um it's more of a peripheral thing right and i've seen guys come up to my wooden dummy they train they kick it with their shin they kick the leg with their shin to show how tough they are it's like okay and your point is all right uh muay thai fighters with really strong shins still break their legs it's like it's it's cool if you can do that but is that is that really the move when someone goes to kick you on the street, just block it with your shin or block it with your forearm. You might have to do that if you're caught late or you don't have anything else, but that's not really the main idea. The wooden dummy teaches you positioning and angling and uh, how to transfer your power into uh, uh, from a sticking position, among other things, right? And I talk about this in detail in my wooden dummy book, and I, I talk about there's like two ways of looking at the wooden dummy. One, you have the wooden dummy form, all right, the traditional set uh, with divided in Langtang Wing Chun in eight parts, and each set has a couple different themes in there, and you try to develop your, your power and your angling and your positioning and your footwork, but you want to almost imagine this is a very strong opponent. So I can't move the opponent, so what do I do? I move myself around a strong opponent. So it's about footwork, not about whacking the shit out of that thing with your arms, right? And then, of course, 
the other way of looking at it is, well, it's also just a training tool. I mean, you could take a wooden dummy arm out and put a long pole in there and use it to train your long pole with, right? I mean, it's also just, to a certain degree, it's also just a piece of wood. It's like it, it, the wooden dummy techniques are an advanced form in Wing Chun uh, that have to be taught in a progression. And then on the other hand, it's also just a piece of wood that you can come up with your own drills and stuff on. The problem is that there are a lot of people in Wing Chun who are not patient enough to really learn the wooden dummy and to learn what it's for and how to use it. And they're too anxious to be Jackie Chan from Rumble in the Bronx. <laughs> so it, they almost just want to skip the step of learning the wooden dummy properly just so they can go up to that thing and just do a bunch of slappy nonsense. And it might look dynamic. It might look fast. But for example, in Wing Chun, when we attack or when we, when we hit our opponent at close range, if our opponent, I mean, if our, your opponent's hands are flying because you're, you're beating him, you're punching him, and his arms are flailing like one of those air inflatable tube things at a used car dealership, right? You're hitting the guy and his arms are going like this. Yeah, okay, you don't have to stick to his arms because you're, you're hitting this guy with so much power, his arms are flailing, so you're just, you're just going in and you're just putting a clinic on him, right? But if the guy is still, he's taking some hits, but he's grabbing you and he's holding on to you and he's trying to fight back, then you're going to need to stick to his arms so that you know where he is, how he's coming at you, whether he's pulling, pushing, trying to hit you, so that you can hit him, but you also need to stick so you can attack and defend at the same time. The hitting arm is also the defending arm, right? So that also means that when you hit, you also need to stick to the limb that the guy's trying to hit you with, right? But then watch all of these flash dance Wing Chun guys on the wooden dummy. And what you will see is the moment they hit the wooden dummy, they're pulling their arm away because they want to do the next movement. Why do they pull their arm away so fast? Because they're prioritizing speed over the fighting logic of what we're actually trying to do with the dummy. If I stick to your arm and hit you and then quickly pull my hand away, well, I'm not sticking to you anymore. Now you can hit me back. So that means that when I go from one position to the other, I need to maintain stick and control on my opponent's arms and when possible on the wooden dummy arms. So by virtue of just doing all this like fast slappy cool shit that gets a million likes on YouTube but uh, or, or on Instagram but no real Wing Chun person subscribes to that method of doing it. Yeah, it looks cool but that is it's like beardy videos. It's it's something that excites the simplest of casuals. It excited me at 10 years old <laughs> and there are adults that still get excited about that because they haven't actually gone through proper Wing Chun training and they see that and they go oh cool and then they think oh yeah the form is interesting uh, but I really just want to go and freestyle well the, the form is not just meant to restrict you to the form you learn the form you train the power you train the angles you can mix up those elements but most importantly is not how you freestyle on the wooden dummy it's how you take those movements and do them against a live human being who's trying to murder your face. So it's like, yes, you can mix all of the elements from the form uh, and other Wing Chun techniques that might not be specifically in the form as long as it's logical. And as long as you stick when you should stick, as long as you move in a way that makes sense and you're not prioritizing a bunch of fast slappy nonsense and not sticking to the dummy, then it's okay. But in reality, what you really want to do is transfer those skills and movements 
to an opponent or a partner. And that's always the thing that gets missed. You can learn the wooden dummy form and you can freestyle and smacky cham the shit out of that thing if you want. That's my new term now. When people just go and do all this stuff on the dummy, I'm just going to call it smacky channing the wooden dummy, right? Trademark. And, trademark, uh, the KFG. And um, it looks cool and it makes you feel dynamic or whatever. But then you go, okay, now do that against me or do that against anyone else who's resisting you and show me how you use it that way. You can't. You're either going to have to hit the guy really hard once and call it a day, or you're going to have to stick and smother his arms if you want to apply those things. So at the end of the day, if you want to be able to use it, you got to go down to the brass tacks of how Wing Chun actually works. And so that whole thing is like a bit of a ruse. It's something that excites the casuals, but makes every proper Wing Chun instructor roll their eyes to the back of their head. So freestyle, yes. You learn all the different elements of the form. You should be able to go to a a wooden dummy as a fully fledged Wing Chun practitioner and be able to mix things up on the dummy in a way that makes sense. Provided you're angling, you're sticking, and when you strike the dummy, you don't lose stick. Like how many times you see people when they do the palm strike, which is supposed to go in between the wooden dummy arms, you hit the head of the wooden dummy, but your forearm is supposed to stick to the arm of the dummy. Yeah. Because while I hit you, I also want to know where your arm is. You know how many people just do an extended arm palm strike over both of the wooden dummy arms just to hit that thing in the head? And I go, so you just hit him without sticking to his limbs? Okay. If you're going to hit without sticking the limbs, why don't you just go hit the wall bag? What do you need the dummy for? The yeah. arm is there for a reason. If you're just going to chain punch the head of the wooden dummy because you put a thick pad on it and ignore the arms, just hit the wall bag, right? It's, it's just... so. To answer the question, yes, you would freestyle the movements that make sense in a logical flow of transferable or potentially transferable skills. But to just go smacky chan on the wooden dummy to excite the casuals, anyone can do that with a little bit of training. But that doesn't mean it's Wing Chun. All right. Uh, there's always plenty of people that can do that without any training. Totally. Totally. You know, yeah. It's really funny. I used to have this. Uh, in fact, I showed you the video of it and that you... It was one of the biggest eye rolls I ever saw. You were just like, is, you were like, this isn't serious. I was like, oh. Yes. Yes, yes it is. Yes, yes, yes. This is rich kid that used to come like, I mean, just used to come to the club that I worked at all the time. And like everyone, they heard I did martial arts. Like, oh, I do martial arts too. And it's like. Yeah, self-taught. Okay. Yeah. yeah, YouTube I'm, University. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah look, shit. and he showed me his wooden dummy form. And, I just, and it's literally the same thing. And he's like, going around and doing just yeah. constantly awesome and i'm like makes sense oh, that, that, that's yeah. great never mind the people who developed that training device and the ideas that they came up with it and learning those and maybe improving upon it just reinvent your own wheel and do your own thing without learning anything and let's see what the results are you know it's like pretty pretty damn ridiculous he was asian as well by the way so well, that gives him an extra amount of legitimacy yeah, yeah normally it's just some silly ass white guy doing that kind of nonsense on the yeah, dummy defiling the wooden dummy yeah he was defiling that wooden yeah. dummy i have a new phrase when someone just does just utter hot nonsense in the name of traditional martial arts i say i'm sorry i can't continue here what you're doing does not comport with reality. <laughs> All right, what else you got for me? You fancy. All right, let's, um, hmm. Yeah, let's try this one. Uh, Eddie Parker, 945. The other 944 were killed. 
in a very brutal fashion by by nine forty five. By nine forty five, <laughs> so he could have that. <laughs> but, but then he realized he should have got their login so he could delete their account because he still can't get those numbers. <laughs> All right, so just by looking at Bruce's physique with a clean detective eye, you can tell what part of Bruce's body he paid a lot of attention to. The dedication of Lee's forearms. That's, that's what it says. The dedication of Lee's forearms was incredible. A man who was as heavy as his wife, 128 pounds or less, and an accomplished Wing Chun practitioner, the forearms are one Bruce would improve. He taught me, from studying his fighting method books, part of punching power comes from massive mighty forearms. I practice Wing Chun today and still work on my forearms whenever I could. That's a great comment. Uh, yeah, I mean, anyone who's taken a good look at Bruce Lee's forearms, I mean, especially when they're fully flexed, um, it's really amazing forearms. But there's a, there's a tiny bit of a fallacy in the comments, because it wasn't really a question. And I think when it comes to physiques, all right, and uh, even within physiques like sp specialization, uh, I think people highly underestimate how much genetics play in that equation. Uh, so for example, I have chunky legs, all right? I have like thick thighs and thick calves for someone my height. And if I don't work out my legs for six months, they're still kind of thick. <laughs> Me too, all right? actually, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You, we both got, we're both haunch magaunch, all right? Big time. Yeah. Genetically blessed down in the Genetically leg area. Genetically blessed in the leg department, right? I, I don't have that in my chest, I don't have that in my shoulders, I have it all in my legs, right? Yeah. Um, but if I work out, if I, if I do leg workouts, my legs blow up like crazy because I'm genetically, like all of my best muscle fibers are in my legs, in my yeah. calves and in my thighs. Mm -hmm. And so not knowing that, you can say like, wow, Alex Richter spends a lot of time working his legs and you'd be dead wrong. My legs are thick and muscled without me doing shit, yeah. okay? Those are my genetics. And when I do work them out, I have... Yeah, I remember uh, Tom, uh, my student, he's a, a professional bodybuilder. Well, he's uh, retired now. But he's like, eh, Sivu, you, know, you, got, you got the legs to be a bodybuilder, right? Like, because <laughs> if you don't have those legs, you can work out your legs all you want. And, I mean, John Jones, John Jones can squat twice what I can squat. But if you look at my leg proportions, I mean, he's standing on toothpicks, right? That's not to say I would want to get kicked by John Jones. But I'm just saying, like, if... if if I did John Jones's workout proportionate to my body weight, I, I would, my thighs would just be rubbing mm -hmm. because they would just balloon to, and I've had that problem where I worked my legs out so intensely, like especially at the beginning of the pandemic, that like my thighs were rubbing oh, because yeah. my thighs were so thick. Yeah. And that was just from doing a few more squats a week with a little bit of extra loaded weight. Mm -hmm. I barely needed to do anything for them to balloon. Now my uh, my triceps also balloon very quickly, so if I if I just did a set of push-ups and I just did a couple little couple little presses or whatever, my triceps look like this, right? Mm -hmm. And if I wear a tight shirt, you go, whoa, the KFG must be, you know, working his triceps every day. And it's no, my lats. I have a, anyone who sees like when you see me on TV, I'm. Uh, I'm just kind of like a normal looking dude, I guess. If I look normal, I don't know if I look normal, but like when people see me, they always say, wow, you're a lot shorter than I thought and you're wider. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like short and I have these wide lats. I have a very wide back. And if you look at my lat muscles, uh, they're not um, the chain. Like Bruce Lee could hold his arms down and he would look skinny. And then when he when he did the cobra pose, he would suddenly become wider. I'm quite wide in the lats, but even when my arms are down, I'm still wide because I, I'm genetically predisposed having these wide lats, these thick triceps and these thick ass legs. And if I don't really do anything for it, I kind of still have them. And then when I do work them out, they pop like crazy. And it's kind of the same way for everyone else. There are certain body parts that pop more than others on certain people because like, and Bruce Lee just had those juicy forearms. Because you could see it even in the days when he wasn't doing heavy weight training. He still had them. It's just that when he lost more body fat, he lost a lot of that interstitial water weight, especially doing those films, and he has less body fat, you can see them much more. And then when he was doing more isometrics and doing more things for his forearms, they would pop. But I think Bruce Lee's forearms are like my thighs. All right? Like those are like some of his best features. Same with his abs. And he just, he just had it. Bruce Lee had really, really skinny legs. And his muscles only popped in his legs when he was really skinny, like an Enter the Dragon, where you would see those striations. On top of that, there are not a lot of photos of Bruce Lee wearing shorts, right? But if you actually look at his leg size, like an Enter the Dragon, which arguably the fight scene with Sammo Hung, yeah, I know he was super skinny. It was the last scene that he filmed, and, you know, yay cocaine. I mean, his, <laughs> his, his legs are absolutely tiny. So, I mean, Bruce could have squatted all the crazy weight and his thighs are not going to blow up. But then maybe he uses the wrist roller or he does something like this and and his forearms pop because that's where he has the best distribution of, uh, let's call them fast twitch muscle fibers or whatever. I'm not a sport physiologist or whatever, but the best, the muscle fibers that best respond to hypertrophy, to growing. Bruce clearly had them in his arms, especially his forearms. He had them in his abs. His chest wasn't really, really big, and he had them in his back. And he didn't really have them in his legs, although his legs were very powerful, but I think that has more to do with tendon strength than sheer, you know, horsepower or whatever. But so I think there's a little bit of a genetic fallacy. You could follow Bruce Lee's exact forearm training routine to a T. Hell, you could even double it. And that doesn't guarantee you would have Bruce Lee's forearms. And, and I think people need to understand that. There's something called the swimmer's body fallacy. And the swimmer's body fallacy is, uh, for example, when you look at swimmers, let's say Michael Phelps is the classic example, like the, the, the god of swimming at the current time, right? And you look at the swimmer's body, tall, lean, wide lats, of course, because of the swimming. There's a certain aesthetic there and a, a really good... It's a really good athletic physique. There's certain, there's certain athletic physiques. I mean, look, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. People find all sorts of things attractive and they like things. Like, but a shot putter, someone who's like the best shot putter, doesn't have a physique like Michael Phelps. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And someone who can lift the most weight in powerlifting doesn't have a bodybuilding physique. But there are people who like that physique over the other one. But you are, you're physique is is determined by your genetics and somewhat determined by what you do with your body regularly but people think i want that long lean nice body like a swimmer so i'm going to take up swimming to get that body and then you do all the swimming in the world and you don't have a body like michael phelps and that's the swimmer's body fallacy is that it's not that swimming gives you a body like michael phelps 
It's that people who have a body like Michael Phelps are excellent at swimming, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And, and so people are looking at it the wrong way. And it's yeah. that people, so in Bruce Lee's case, he was, uh, he, he was someone like, I don't like those body type things like ectomorph or what I think ectomorph is the one where you're really kind of skinny and striated like Ethan, right? Yeah. Ethan, our Brooklyn instructor, he has the same type of body like Bruce Lee. Skinny, but well-muscled. And even if he doesn't particularly work out, he's got juicy forearms. He's got juicy striations in the abs. And he's not, like, doing crazy work. Like, I probably work out, like, physical strength training way more than Ethan does. But Ethan, like, if you looked at our bodies, he's got a way more cut body than mine. Absolutely. Right? But that's because he's got that body type. So I think people need to be mindful of the importance of genetics and the importance of... Uh, well, it's really genetics. <laughs> and you either have the genetics to for those certain things to pop or you don't. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't have the genetics, you cannot improve those things. But the idea that you could fall, if you did not have good forearm genetics, you could triple Bruce Lee's forearm program and you're not going to have Bruce Lee's forearms. And that's why bodybuilders are a really special breed because for the most part, bodybuilders are people who have good genetics in all of the body parts, right? And often when a bodybuilder lacks in something, it's like a genetic thing. Like, yeah, he's got really awesome legs, but like, man, his back just doesn't do it because no matter how much he works on his back, it's just not going to pop. You know, you have to have those Arnold genetics, those Dorian Yates genetics and to be at the upper highest levels. It doesn't mean you cannot enjoy bodybuilding if you don't have those genetics. So you cannot try Bruce Lee's forearm training program if you're doing Wing Chun. You just need to slow your roll on what you think is going to happen because you have to look at your body type. You have to look at your genetics and see if you're predisposed for even having that level of physique in that body part. Oh, yeah. No, my, uh, my old uh, personal trainer, who was the professional bodybuilder, um, Honduran, and he would always complain about how he had this terrible Honduran leg genetics. Oh, really? Yeah. He's just like, he's like, I just have, he's got the terrible Honduran leg genetics. And he would just... Very like kind skin, of skinny legs, or what? yeah, super skinny. Uh-huh. Like so, like, everything else about him was just right. great. But like right. he just his legs, yeah. especially his calves. And he would, he would jokingly but kind of half creepily be like, you know, I'm going to come and steal your calves, Mike. Right. Because right. your calves and your legs are like that. And I'm like, yes. yeah, I just. Yes. And the funny thing is, is that I remember when I was, I remember when they popped first. I was about 13. Right. And it was like I'd sort of just started ballet, and I was a chubby kid. Right, uh, you know, it's kind of a chubby adult now. Yeah, I sort of kind of went there, went back, came back, oh, there's a whole thing. But like, and I remember being upset that my legs didn't reduce in size when I started doing serious ballet training. Oh yeah, because any training you're going to do is going to pump them up. Yeah. It's like you can't slim them down if you have those genetics. They'll just get beefier. Yeah, I didn't realize this. And then I remember just being 14 at some 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 bar or something or like like something like these this this adult guy who's clearly someone that worked out just looked at my legs so how the hell do you get that how old are you and right. i'm like i didn't tell him it was ballet he would have yeah. been like because it wasn't a done thing but i was just right, like right, i don't right. know it just happened you know what i mean he's like just, just just like yeah and ever since then thick thighs big calves right and right. i have again same thing i work them out during the pandemic i was running and yeah. i was cycling and Doing yeah, all you the got those haunches, like, man. Yeah, man. And yeah. Just, this, then, then they start, you know, so especially the calves, you start seeing the definition, and I'm yeah. just like, bloody hell. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be on the end of that kick. I yeah, tell you. well, there's so, there's so much uh, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's all gen. And again, the genetics thing is not to say that you can't improve what you have or that you shouldn't try. I'm not saying that at all. No. It's just saying like the idea of getting to those upper levels of physique in those body parts, really, they require something extra and you either have it or you don't. Like, for example, I have those big calves too. But when you look at where my calf insertion is, it's past the midway point of my shin. Yeah. All right. So I can never be a sprinter mm-hmm. because when you look at people who sprint really fast, first of all, they all have skinny legs. My legs are way too heavy to sprint. Like they're just too big. You know what I mean? Like, or so I should say long distance running, but even short um, sprinters do actually have pretty thick legs. I should actually more long distance running. What you would see is they have their calf muscles way higher up in yeah. the back. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just don't have that. Right. There's like nothing I can do to change it. So uh, you should find what you're good at. And accentuate the shit out of it. Yeah. yeah. That's why I've accepted that I'm always going to have like a fat stomach, but everything else around me does all right. My arms. Now you look fine, man. You look great. And you're getting in shape for Hong Kong too, which is oh, awesome. Yeah. I yeah. also, by the way, have good neck genetics. Ah. If, I put, if I do any neck exercise, my neck turns into like a wrestler's neck like very quickly. Right? <laughs> you got to check your neck. Yeah. Check your neck. <laughs> check yourself. All right. What else you got for me? All right. Okay, cool. Um, that was a, that was a good one. Like that one. All right. Um, here we go. Frank Iomi. You know, Iomi, what a great last name. Anyone who's a rock fan knows, knows a very famous Iomi. Who? T- Tony Iomi. From? Lead, lead guitarist of Black Sabbath, like the oh, only okay. constant member of Black Sabbath since they started in 68. Oh, 68. they switched out all the other members? At some point or uh-huh. other. When did they switch like, out Ozzy? Ozzy left in the late 70s and then he came kind of back and forth and back. Oh, they actually did switch. I was just joking. Oh, yeah. No, he was out. He was out in like the sort of late 70s, I think. Oh, maybe like around 1980 went uh-huh. solo. You know, and that, you're going to you know. get comments in there where people went and looked it up online and they're like, actually, it was March of 81. Yeah, uh, I should. You know what? I'm going to I'm going to be you for a second. Yeah. Just so we're clear, I'm not a Black Sabbath expert, so I'm feel free to correct me, but yes. I'm not going to be upset if you yes. do. Yes, yes, yes. Just because oh, someone will still shit on it. Yeah, <laughs> carry on. People do in the comments. I, I mean, I just say if, you, if, if you're upset about it, I cry about it. There, I was, guess, a guy, you know hey, there was a guy in the comment the other uh, comment section the other day. It's just like uh, he was. Uh, it was about the carriage episode we did, and then he was like, "Who the hell believes whatever f- Norris says?" <laughs> You know, oh because, because I guess in the episode, I don't remember, um, Steve Carriage referenced something that Chuck Norris said. Yeah. And then because Chuck Norris has also gone on record saying some things that are not, you know, super complimentary about Bruce Lee. A lot of Bruce Lee fans get upset about that. I'm also not a huge fan of everything that Chuck Norris says about Bruce Lee. Yeah. You know, because he said stuff like, well, you know, I was a professional fighter and, you know, Bruce wasn't. And, you know, like, and that's this, all the stuff he said after Bruce Lee died. When yeah. Bruce Lee was alive, he was all like, oh, yeah, I'm learning from Bruce Lee. He even wrote a very apologetic letter to Bruce Lee when he had got caught shit talking Bruce Lee. And he was like, oh, he says, very sorry. I consider you a great martial artist, blah, 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 and a great teacher and everything like that. And then after Bruce Lee died, well, you know, what the people ask him, what would you do if you fought Bruce Lee? Well, you know, I was a professional competitor. Boy, bro, point karate, all right? 
at least Joe Lewis and some of those other guys really got into full contact, and they would have some kind of claim that, yeah, I mean, they went in there and fought full contact. Chuck was a point sparring guy, all right? I did point sparring karate when I was a, when I was a kid, all right? That's like, that's like your starter, um, you know, martial art competition. And then, you yeah, know, yeah. if you continue down that road, you would work your way up to other things, right? But that was the pinnacle back then. So, you know, to call, you know, to call himself a professional fighter where Bruce Lee wasn't, um, Bruce Lee had a boxing match and you know, Chuck Norris never had a sanctioned boxing match uh, and, and makes it seem like, oh, he was like the MMA fighter of that time. It's, it's point karate is glorified tag. OK. Yeah. And nowadays, luckily, you have full contact karate, you have Kyokushinkai, you have a bunch of different types of karate that have really good, strong sparring. But I mean, those guys were those guys were playing touch football of martial arts, okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then making very large claims for themselves afterwards. Right? It's a, yeah. little, a little overboard. So I'm not some, like, I, I get it. Like, when Chuck said that, it's like, dude, the best Chuck Norris ever looked on film was in Way of the Dragon. Yeah. Because it takes, it's how good your, your dance partner is, right? Absolutely. Although I feel like you are kind of dismissing the whole of his work on Walker, Texas Ranger. Come on. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's also like, where, where did Chuck Norris look better than in Way of the Dragon? All right. Yeah. Lone Wolf McQuaid when he's fighting David Carradine, of all people. Uh, no. Uh, the Octagon. I mean, no. He never looked quite as good as he did. He looked dynamic and fast when he fought Bruce. And he looked the best. And, then, and that was really the film that put Chuck Norris on the map in terms of, like, him getting more film work. Yeah. So, like, for, for him to kind of shit on Bruce a little bit seems a little uh, kind of like he's biting the hand that fed him, right, you know? But either way, you still have to respect Chuck Norris because he did have a career. He did make a name for himself. He did make tons of movies. He made tons of money in the 80s. He eventually did infomercials with Christy Brinkley. I would love to do an infomercial with Christy Brinkley. For, by all metrics, Chuck Norris had a very successful career. Yeah. And then this guy's like, yeah, fuck Norris or whatever. And it's like, dude, I also don't like the things that he said about Bruce Lee, but like, slow your roll, all right? Mm -hmm. Because what are your contributions to martial arts? Or what are your contributions to any field, all right? If you have contributed something of substance to your field, all right, then you might be able to talk shit about someone in a related field. But it's like, it's always these anonymous guys, you know, like just going on and on and like just coming in hot. It's like, bro, you voluntarily watched this video. And if, if the mention of Chuck Norris makes you lose a little bit of emotional control to the point where you got to have verbal diarrhea and some comments, you might want to think about how strong and stoic you are as a person. <laughs> that the mention of someone, Norris, are you an adult, bro? Get over it. Well, you know what it was as well. It's like he came up with that one night. It's like, oh, Chuck Norris. Yeah, I can't wait. Norris. Norris. Yeah. And you know what would happen if, you know, Sticks 97, whatever his <laughs> stupid YouTube handle was, uh, actually met Chuck Norris. You know, he'd be like, oh, man, I'm a huge fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Absolutely. like, go, go and say that to his face. Mm -hmm. All right. Go tell him you don't like what he said about Bruce Lee to his face. Go say it. Go ahead. Yeah. I'll wait. Mm -hmm. All right. And don't make fun of his name, Chuck, because his real name is Carlos. Yes, absolutely. All right. So Excellent. what else we got? Right. Okay. So we actually didn't get to the question. Oh, what was the question again? <laughs> Short-term memory is the first thing to go. It's age-related decline. Nah, it's all the weed. Anyway, um, at Frank Iomi. Again, back to, we just like, it's like oh, a right, time. Oh, right, right, It went to Black Sabbath. Yeah, we started at Black Jesus Sabbath Christ. and ended up at Chuck Norris. meandering hot nuts. You know what we say? 
the Kung Fu Genius is gonna answer a whole bunch of hot nonsense from YouTube. Hey, I'm sorry, most of the hot nonsense came out of came out of our mouths for the last five minutes. <laughs> no, where we good. just went totally off script. All right, yeah. so what do we got? Streams we of got? consciousness. So many people are confused about basics in Wing Chun Chi Sao. Some view it as a collection of moves, and masters confuse their own students by talking of principles and concepts without telling them what's what. The 15 Chi Sao Fundamentals is my attempt at explaining Wing Chun Chi Sao from a perspective of principles, but also with the basic techniques required to express those principles. It shows the framework for Hong Kong Wing Chun Chi Sao, in particular, the training of Pun Sao and Lap Da. This is necessary training before going on to the higher and more spontaneous expressions of Chi Sao. Right now, if you use the code KFG Chi Sao, you can get a signed copy of my book for the price of the unsigned one. Click on the link in the description below and use the code KFG Chi Sao at checkout to get a signed copy of this full color, over 230 page manual on the vital foundational training exercise of Wing Chun. This offer is good while supplies last, so get yours today. All right, so had Bruce Lee survived, do you think he would oh. have made a movie with his friend Steve McQueen? Uh -huh. If so, what do, you do, what do you think it would have been like? So, well, that's a difficult question because hypotheticals and all we can go on is what we know about their relationship. And at the time of Bruce Lee's death in, you know, a short time prior, uh, Bruce and Steve McQueen were not on good terms. Uh, for a number of reasons. I think, um, first off, it had something to do with uh, when Bruce had his idea for the silent flute, which was basically uh, a film that kind of showcases the Jeet Kune Do philosophy. Yeah. Perhaps in a slightly overly preachy way. I'm, I'm sorry to say, I'm actually happy he never made Silent Flute. Having seen the notes of it, it just it looked horrific. <laughs> it looked like a mess, okay? Yeah. Um, and you can see that he started to do a little bit of that in Game of Death. When you see all the footage that they have of Game of Death, which was shot without sound, um, uh, they cut a lot of stuff out in those fight scenes because he was constantly explaining Jeet Kune Do. But it would be like he would have this fight and then there would be like 30 seconds of exposition, you know, about this bamboo is flexible and like, oh, you know, fixed routines are blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I'm a huge Bruce Lee fan. I love the whole Jeet Kune Do idea, you know, no fixed routines for yourself. Like, I'm all for that. I just don't want to be preached at in the middle of fight scenes. Right. And I love mm -hmm. Bruce Lee. Yeah. But I have a feeling like he wanted to, it was also the, you know, what well, was the seventies, but coming out of the sixties, it's like, he wants to be cool and philosophical and all this kind of stuff. So how are we going to show the philosophy through film? Let's just say it in long bits of expository dialogue. Right. And having seen some of those bits from game of death that got cut out, I'm like, Oh, I mean, I'm not a fan of what they did with the Game of Death footage, but like, had Bruce Lee finished it and put all that stuff in there, it would have been like a weird preachy film with some cool fight scenes. Yeah. And I think Silent Flute was his first attempt at preachy philosophical film. And I'm kind of glad it never got made. Yeah, I know David Carradine made it or whatever. I think it was called Circle of Iron, which is basically the Silent Flute. But I never watched it because they... Anyone who's watched this podcast, I'm not a David Carradine fan, all right? Uh, why? It kind of sucked. And two, I spent some time with David Carradine on a panel, all right? We did it in yes. season one. So you can go yes, back. I don't, know what, I don't know what episode it was, but he, he was an absolute tool. Yeah. And not a martial artist. And in defense of Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris said, David Carradine is as good of a martial artist as I am an actor. 
fair okay, play so to any, Chuck. So fair play to Chuck. So anyone, like, that's the other thing. Like, you, you get bitchy about what he said to, about Bruce Lee afterwards or whatever. But anyone who could be that self-deprecating about his acting skills to make a joke about David Carradine's non-existent martial arts skills is A-OK in my book. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, anyway, Bruce had this idea for Silent Flute. Uh, and, you know, he had a friend who was a writer, a Sterling Siliphant, and they were going to do this thing. And Bruce Lee wanted Steve McQueen, and Steve McQueen said no. And, of course, Steve McQueen had learned some Jeet Kune Do from Bruce Lee, and they were friends and stuff. And Bruce did not take that very well. And I think he saw that as, like, a, an affront to their friendship, an affront to his potential of making this film with a big star. Because what's the point of having the biggest star in Hollywood as your friend if you can't put him in the script you just wrote. Now, the question is, is was, could, could this be a point around when he was maybe, you know, indulging a bit hard in the celebrity nose candy? Because that's exactly mm, the kind of... I'm not sure. I, I really think the, the cocaine stuff is just starting to predate uh, Big Boss. Right. So he was using a little bit of it in the States, but it really ramped up when he was in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is some overlap, but I, I'm not going to say it's necessarily that yet because it seems when he started to, you know, Bob send more Coke, make sure you send good quality Coke, Bob send $500 worth of Coke. Um, that's, we're really looking 72, 73. And so Silent Flute was still when he was in the States, this predates right. him going to, okay. to, to Hong Kong. So there, there is some overlap. And again, I'm, you know, I'm going off the top of my head. I could be in error. I would have to look and see there, but it's possible, okay? But uh, it's clear from the things that, that have been written that Bruce did not take it very well. And then later decided, oh, well, I have another great friend who's a big star, uh, James Coburn. Yeah. And then he talked to him, and James Coburn agreed to be in the silent flute, and they even went to India to shoot for locations, but that was a whole shit show in itself. Um, that's a whole other, you can read Matt Pauly's book. It like really goes into that in some detail. And then also Marcus Okanya has a whole book on the silent flute where you can, yeah, I mean, like Bruce Lee basically drove a James Coburn nuts on that trip. Um, he had just hurt his back, and he was like, he's just kind of an overexcited kid who can't sit still right. while they have to drive four hours into the <laughs> desert in, in India or whatever. So it's like he, he had, I, I think that the trip to India put a strain on uh, Coburn and Bruce Lee's relationship a little. I think Coburn was a little sick of Bruce Lee by the time he got back to the States, and they ended up not making the movie. Um, so, and then there was another incident where. Uh, there was something like an uh, an an autograph or something that came from uh, Steve McQueen to Bruce Lee, and it said to my biggest fan, <laughs> Steve McQueen. Wow. And um, I think the problem is like Bruce Lee was very modern, yeah, and very Western and very hip, but he was still Chinese. And even though he was not someone who was overly formal in his teaching or whatever, like his students still called him Sifu. He, he still had a lot of respect for Yip Man because he grew up in that culture. As much as Bruce Lee became kind of Western and hip or whatever, he was still Chinese, grew up in Hong Kong. He still did have an understanding and respect for um, maybe not other Sifus, but his own Sifu for sure. Yeah. And the idea that Steve McQueen, who had learned Jeet Kune Do from Bruce, and Bruce was, for all intents and purposes, his Sifu, would then write to his Sifu, to my biggest fan. 
that was an affront on their relationship. Right. But then even if there wasn't the whole Sifu student relationship, maybe they were just buddies. Yeah. Unless we're really close to write something like that. Let's say you're a TV guy and I'm a movie guy and we're friends, but my status is a little bit higher. And I send you something like, like to my biggest fan, unless we're like total bros and you get that it's a yeah. joke. Mm hmm. Which wasn't exactly the case between Bruce and Steve, from my understanding. Of course, it could be wrong. We're speculating on relationships we know really very little about. It would still be kind of weird to write that. You can yeah. see how that would come off a little like, <laughs> really? Like, that, yeah. you know what I mean? So that, I think, was a major nail in the coffin of their relationship. Now, does that mean that once Bruce Lee had become a big star after Enter the Dragon... If he had lived and came back to the States and then he had more film offers and maybe there was something on the table with him and Steve McQueen that they couldn't make up or something like that. Would Bruce have gone for the chance to kind of see if he can one up this guy who kind of was his friend and his student and then kind of insulted him? Or would he have said no? All right. Because there was also a film on the table with Charles Bronson, supposedly at the end of Bruce Lee's life. So Bruce Lee may not have needed to work with Steve McQueen. He might have still taken that, but there was some weirdness between them at right. the time of his death. And yes, Steve McQueen was a pallbearer at his uh, Seattle funeral, but that doesn't mean that things weren't weird at the time of their death. I mean, that is that, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah, Steve McQueen came to Bruce Lee's funeral. That's a big deal. All right. They had a strained relationship at the time of Bruce Lee's death. So um, I don't, this hypothetical uh, starts off with a problem. <laughs> the two of them were not really on speaking terms at the time of Bruce Lee's death. Uh -huh. All right. So what else you got? Mm, all right. So by the way, Enter the Dragon ended up surpassing, I think, uh, the records that Steve McQueen had set. So Bruce, you know, th there was a story that after, you know, the whole signature thing or whatever, that Bruce, you know, shook his fist and made a vow that he would, you know, become a bigger star than Steve McQueen. Of course, <laughs> is that story actually true? The problem is when, whenever a story sounds like a like a, a story. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and then he shook his fist at Steve McQueen's mansion saying, I'll be better than you one day. And then he went out and did it. That sounds like narrative fiction. Because like, yeah. the real life doesn't often work out that way. So that's why when I hear those kind of stories, those, those seem like narratives that have been put on. He could have been really salty or whatever. This whole like shaking his fist and saying, you know, I'll, I'll beat you one day. Yes, I will. I swear if it's the last thing I do. But. Bruce ended up with Enter the Dragon, um, beating Steve McQueen. I think his, at least for whatever film Steve McQueen had in 73 and perhaps beating all records. I mean, Enter the Dragon was a huge juggernaut. And then even later, it continued on once it went on VHS and everything like that. But um, in general, I mean, unless you're an old school film fan or whatever, I mean, go out and say Bruce Lee's name and say Steve McQueen's name. And I would venture to guess more people out here in New York probably know who Bruce Lee was. Even if they don't know everything about him, they've heard of Bruce Lee, where they might not have heard of Steve McQueen. So Bruce did win uh, posthumously, but he could never enjoy it. Well, I'd say people probably know who Steve McQueen is, but like everyone's going to know Enter the Dragon. Everyone's going to know Bruce Lee. I don't know if yeah. they, they might not know the names of his movies. I don't know how many people would really know Steve McQueen, though. And this is total sampling bias, but like my daughters, yeah, they grew up in my house. They yeah. know who Bruce Lee is. I haven't even, Steve McQueen has never even come up. And, and, to be fair, I have been bringing up my daughters, now that they're a little bit older, on the classics. So we watched all of the Rocky films, which then allowed them to watch Creed and understand it. Yep. Showed them Star Wars. 
showed them twins, you know, like even like classic comedies, Arnold Schwarzenegger, things like that. I want them to know classic films. And um, Steve McQueen is films are not high on that list right now. Right. And these are girls that have exposure to it. I really think I, I really think if you just took a like a random sample out in New York City, Times Square, which is a sample of New Yorkers and tourists from everywhere you'd find more people who knew Bruce Lee's name than Steve McQueen's name. Or you would find people who knew Bruce Lee, and oh, yeah, he's like a martial artist. Like Steve McQueen is some, like, American actor or something like that, right? Yeah. That, like, they would be yeah. a lot more vague on Steve McQueen, but they could at least say one or two things about Bruce Lee. So I think Bruce Lee won in the end. No, I don't disagree with that, but that's, that's the yeah. point I'm making. I don't think that people would just dismiss, to be like, oh, who's Steve? Steve McQueen is, like, such a... God, like, he's like... I hadn't seen any of his movies when I was a kid, and I knew exactly who he was. Right. I knew that he died young, and he was like another one of these great actors. Well, he didn't really die. I mean, he died. Yeah, I mean, overall, yeah. But he, he wasn't like James Dean or something. Like no, that. no. But like yeah. you know, but relatively, yeah. he did die with wrinkles on his face, though not very old. Yeah, yeah. like relative yeah. to like yeah. his his talent. You sure, know what I mean? sure. Yeah. I mean, like, fun fact. I think I actually might have mentioned this on a previous um, uh, podcast. But I'm going to mention it again. My ex-wife's grandfather was one of the main protagonists, bad guys in Bullet. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Wow, that's he, cool. He doesn't say any words in, in it. He drives a car and chases Bullet a lot. Wow. And he has no speaking. He's he been tons of stuff as like kind of a, as a character actor and now uh -huh. his career. But that was his big role. He didn't really say anything in it, but he's uh -huh. like there. Very, anyway, so that's a side. But wow. anyway, so like Steve McQueen for me was just kind of like, he's one of those kind of pop culture icons where you would see him on T-shirts, yes, and posters, right. and everything. But there's also know. our age and older. So yeah, I'm thinking when we get this sample size, it's also people in their 20s, people in their 30s. We're right on that cusp, our mm. age of people who would still know that because that stuff was still really cool when we were young. Yeah. But now we're in a generation where they don't they haven't even heard of that stuff. But somehow Bruce Lee still permeates. Yeah. You know, late period Gen X, the best. Yeah, late period. That's exactly what we are. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, Steve McQueen's son, Chad McQueen, was in the first Karate Kid. Yes, I did. Yeah, I do yeah. remember that. But that's for whatever I... reason, refused to do Cobra Kai. He was really? like the only one that didn't come back in that reunion episode. That's so weird. He's got one to it. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he's got his reasons. I mean, I mean, he's probably a great guy or whatever, but he just doesn't act anymore or whatever. But man, I wanted to see Chad McQueen in, in uh, Cobra Kai. Yo, Chad McQueen, would you? Show up for the next season or something, man. I want to see. Yeah, that. seriously, come yeah. back. You know, and let's also, talk about. I know it comes. I know being the son of someone really famous comes with a lot of baggage, but dude, imagine being the son of Steve McQueen. Jesus yeah, Christ! Man, and then awesome. coming back for Cobra Kai. Yeah, come back for Cobra Kai, Chad. I mean, they're talking about bringing right. Hillary Swank back for it. Oh, please don't. Oh, that's gonna happen. You know, it. they're gonna the, bring that one in for the last. I'm, I'm all. I have no problem with a female Karate Kid at all, but I just feel that that film doesn't belong in the canon it i just feel i just feel that it, it, it kind of demystifies mr miyagi too much it makes him too normal that's fair but you know the, the i mean I, I kind of i didn't even know it existed until recently to be fair Good. you know what i mean and i've kind of just seen it doesn't <laughs> exist but the main protagonist michael ironside michael ironside yes who is see you it's a party richter yeah he gets his arms ripped he gets off his arms ripped off right? Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger. so that's like, my favorite Favorite. I mean, we've t probably talked about this before, but like, but it's so Total good. Recall. All right. First of all, my name, Richter. Okay. Mm -hmm. Michael Ironsides. They're going up that elevator, and he rips his arms off with the <laughs> elevator, and then Ironside goes down with you know without any arms. 
And then Arnold Schwarzenegger just says, see you at the party, Richter, and throws the arms dismissively over. Now, you have to imagine this in context. What kind of person could be in a fight, even with someone you were very angry with? Their arms would get ripped off. You would hold on to them very coolly and be, and ha- and be in the frame of mind to come up with a funny one-liner, holding two severed arms in your hands and then just dismissively throw them. Like, I want to see the Venn diagram of, like, badass, psycho, and serial killer. Like, where that mix would need to be for you to just be you rip off someone's arms. Because up until that point, like, Quaid has killed people, but he hasn't mutilated anyone. (laughs) And then he does it, and it's like, for him, it's like any other Tuesday. Oh, yeah, I got these two. See you with the party, Richter. And throws them. I mean, like, he shoots Sharon Stone in the head earlier on in the film. Considering the divorce. Considering the divorce. Like, you know... But he's like that in all of his movies. He you know is. What I mean? He is. Well, he. I mean, blow off some steam, Bennett. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, he's got these things where it's like. But but in Commando, he is that badass. Oh yeah, he's so good in Commando. He's so. Yeah, I rewatched Commando a few weeks ago, and I was like, I forgot how good it was. I think it's a steady diet of modern action movies where it's like all spectacle, but it just doesn't have the the story and the heart. Yeah. And then you go back and you watch Commando's very basic story. Oh yeah. But the action, it's visceral. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's real explosions. It's fights. It's shooting. It's not like space things going through here where you're not even sure, like, is that the good guy ship or bad guy? I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. Um, and I forgot, if, if, you ha- if you guys have seen Commando and you haven't watched it, it's, it's remarkably good. And if you haven't seen it, watch it because it's remarkably it good. It is remarkably good. Predator is really good. Predator is so, so great. I mean, yeah, so, so, when, he, when he cracks the head of the dude on the plane and then it gets up, it just goes, oh, just take care of my friend. He's dead tired. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I mean, he's, he's a, a real like certified badass in that movie. Yeah. Whereas in Total Recall, it's not clear if he's a real agent or he's a normal guy with that idea implanted in his head. Yeah. But actually, maybe that makes sense because... Maybe in Quaid's mind, he's like, oh, this is just some this, this is just some fantasy that's been implanted in my brain because I paid for this. So he he can be funny when he rips off someone's arms because it doesn't really happen. But I think by that part in the movie, he's already kind of sus as to whether this is actually real or not. And the movie's a bit ambiguous in terms of like, was that all memory? Even like the guy coming back saying that, uh, oh, no, something went wrong. Like, was that also part of like it's. Well, they had to make it a little. It's it, it, it's a little less ambiguous than the the book, uh-huh. because the book in in the book it's really not sure whether. Oh, the really? Yeah. I never. It's a Philip K. Dick book, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, never, I, I never read the book. I read a lot of Philip K. Dick. But is it a short? Is it a short story though? Isn't it? Yes, or, it is uh-huh. a short story. Like uh-huh. a lot of this stuff is a short story. It's like okay. it's like reading Do Androids. Uh, Dream of Electric Sheep, which is... Um, I've heard the title. I, I don't read a lot of fiction, so we I'm see, kind of... In, yeah, well, see, that was what Blade Runner was based on. Oh, uh, right, right, and, yeah, right, right. I've heard of that before, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, again, really good, and there's so much in it that's very similar, but then there's a whole kind of twist in the book that they had to kind of sort of take out of the film mm. and make it less ambiguous for, you know, audiences. You ah, know I mean? I see, and because see, the thing see. about Blade Runner is it did critically terribly at the time, but it's now like... Seen as regardless of classic, masterpiece, yeah. but it wasn't you know much I mean? yet at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah. So anyway, oh, talking of back off tangents. <laughs> look at us. This is the this is the Mikey and KFG just talk about stuff episode. <laughs> uh, 
apologize. Yeah. No, I'm not uh, apologizing. It's okay. It's we great. have uh, we have we have some episodes coming up where we stay on target with themes. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, Chris Bark, fifteen thirty three. This is the guy who came up with the thing that gave us our other episode, Bruce oh, Lee thing. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Right. So. Um, He's got, I think this is a little, maybe he's going on a little bit, you know, um, what's the word? Extending the thought, I don't know, but here we go. Since this video is about the subject, usually I don't care so much about Beardy, but I thought I'd have to send you this message since you are a Wing Chun instructor. If you have time to go over to his channel, he uploaded a video claiming some Kung Fu master wants revenge on Bruce Lee for beating up his teacher, and they fought. The Kung Fu master is Wang Kang Lung. Oh, Wang Kang Lung. Yeah, Wang Kang Lung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah. My, my, my pronunciation was bad. That's okay. Hey, hopefully, if he's in Hong Kong, maybe we have a chance to meet him. Oh, I would love to yeah, meet him. Yeah, he's one of Wang Kang Lung's top guys, and he had met Bruce Lee on the set of Enter the Dragon, and uh, the founder of uh, Practical Wing Chun. Really, really cool guy. And his gym is a stone's throw from Lung Ting's gym there in uh, Fantastic. In well, Yomate. I'm definitely going to have a, have a surprise for you then. And Beardy shows photographs of him with Lee on the Enter the Dragon set. We know they were only doing movie choreography, but Beardy claims the photos were taken from the fight. Of course he does, because he takes any photos of two people with Bruce Lee and then says, oh, this was a fight when it's like them just like posing or something. Right? He even put the name Wang Kam Lung as graphic in the photo in his video. Oh, that was Sure, stupid. it is Sifu Wan, but making such a bullshit statement is simply too much. So maybe this is a story you want to mention in your next video about Beardy. Should you do one? Only a suggestion, of course. And I think it wouldn't even be a bad idea if maybe someone could contact Sifu Wan and tell him about it. That really, that's really too much, in my opinion. Mm. I don't think he would care. No. But since Beardy mentioned him by name, it's really possible Sifu Wan could react to it. Mm. Here you go. He even sent me the link to the video. Ah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, well... Beardy, I mean, whatever his real name is. I mean, he's a fantasist. He takes photos of Bruce Lee, not knowing much about Bruce Lee, and then he just spins a yarn as if, like, he's showing a photo to someone for the first time. You're like, it's like a creative writing assignment. Yeah. All right, you see this photo, you don't know anything about the people in there. Write a story. What's going on in this photograph, right? Where he's just, and he always falls on his face on stuff that is. Like if he were, if he actually knew anything about Bruce Lee, he would probably he should try to take like obscure photos where people don't really know who the other people in the photo with him with are, are like. But he'll take like Dan and Asanto, who happens to be in a karate gi, and then just make up a story that he's a Kempo grandmaster named Baxter or whatever, right? And then take Wan Kam Leung. But the weird thing is he actually used Wan Kam Leung's name, like so he didn't. Maybe he just can't make up Chinese names. He's just not that clever. Um, someone who's still alive and still around. And also there are plenty of... One uh, Sivu has talked about that meeting with Bruce Lee on multiple occasions in articles and in books and here and there, whatever. Like, that info is available, right? Um, the idea that Wan Kam Lung would get uh, revenge for, you know, Bruce Lee didn't beat up Wong Sam Lung. They were, just, they were just showing some fight choreography. They were doing some fight choreography. So, I mean, his facts, as always, are wrong because he... Not because he heard them wrong, because he just made them up. Let's yeah. be like, let's... The, the, the weird thing about Beardy is, if it wasn't for the odd success of his channel and his ability to channel noobs who know nothing about Bruce Lee, it, there's really nothing to talk about if he didn't constantly do things and say things that just constantly show up on my front porch where people are like, yo, this guy keeps saying this or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> um, okay, I get it, but it's like... The fact that someone has a YouTube channel, the fact that someone says stuff, does not mean you have to take them seriously. There is something weird about having a channel, having videos, 
putting them out there and it automatically le somehow legitimizing what you say, even if people know you're full of shit. And Beardy, as I've said multiple times, he's not a Bruce Lee historian. He's not, I'm not a Bruce Lee historian, all right? Uh, he's not even someone, he's not like, for example, I go in these weird studies and things like that. Like I, I like go down these rabbit holes of sometimes things have nothing to do with Wing Chun. I just find them fascinating. Like like I talked about a few years ago during the pandemic, I, I went down this rabbit hole of like Greg Doucette and, yeah. and Derek from More Plates, More Dates and learned about like what PEDs celebrities are using. And like I learned all about this. It was really fascinating. And I got really, really into it. And then I was kind of done with it and went on to the next thing, right? And like uh, lately, because I have like no skin in the game with religion, um, I watch all these like religious uh, guys debate each other. And like even within like Bible studies, there's like, was Jesus a real person who then later was, they attributed all this mystical stuff to him and they kind of, you know, the, his publicity kind of popped him up or mm -hmm. was he a complete, was he fabricated whole cloth? And as it turns out, scholars on this topic who are very, very well, I mean, these are people who really know what they're doing. They disagree on that, and they have very, and they're very strong arguments on both sides. And I'm sitting back here eating popcorn. Don't have any skin in the game. I, I you know, I tend to believe one more over the other, but it literally doesn't matter what I think about this topic. I'm a complete layman. But like, I follow that because what I also learn is how people debate historicity of things. So it's like, you know, the people look at it superficially and go like, well, well Jesus didn't exist, and you know, my religion is real, so he's got to exist. And other people going like, well, I mean, your religion could be real, but maybe he didn't exist, whatever. Like, there's all sorts of things. I don't have any skin in the game, so I don't have any emotion, right? But the interesting thing is to hear how high-level experts can take a subject that doesn't have a consensus, or, 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 or there is some people are disputing what the consensus is, and can intelligently argue it. Yeah. And I can see, hear the arguments from both sides and go, uh huh. Beardy is not some kind of like you have John Little and you have Steve Carriage and you have Matt Polly and uh, Dr. James Bishop. And, and you have all these guys who have like legit knowledge. And, and even those gentlemen there that I mentioned, each of them has their strengths within the Bruce Lee world. John Little is probably the most well-rounded of all of them, but I would also say John Little also very highly specializes in what Bruce Lee did during his time in America because he had so much access to people who learned in, from Bruce Lee in the States. And I would say if I know anything, which is very little, I'm a little more partial to what Bruce Lee did in Hong Kong, both in the beginning of his life and towards the end. And if I really want to find out like, oh, where was he teaching Jeet Kune Do in 66, I would probably pop open a book from John Little or something, or maybe ask uh, uh, Richard Torres or something like that. Like even within the world of Bruce Lee experts, you got like guys, you know, like John Little's also f as a bodybuilder and fitness writer also is like really knowledgeable on Bruce Lee's training routines, right? Steve Carriage knows a lot about the movie stuff and the photos and the sets and where they did this and, you know, because of the books that he put out, right? Uh, Matt Pauly also had the chance to interview so many people who knew Bruce Lee, and he wrote this pretty exhaustive biography, right? And Dr. James Bishop knows every single thing Bruce Lee took from someone else, right? <laughs> and so, so, I mean, you know, uh, but the thing is, each of those specialize in something, right? And then you look at Beardy, and almost axiomatically, all of his facts are wrong. But you realize, he knows he's making shit up, which is also why he never shows his face. 
um, or he never shows himself and he made up a fake name. So he has absolutely no responsibility for anything he puts out there because it's not like if I say something and I totally make it up, people are going to call me out in the comments and people can find me and say something, right? Who, how can you find Beardy? You can't. He's a made-up beard. He's not even a real name. Bernard McAllister is his fake real name, all right? He has zero responsibility. He just knows clickbait, the right thumbnail, sensationalistic title, and he's going to get all of these noobs who don't know shit about Bruce Lee. But Beardy is not on the list of people like Carriage and Polly and Little and Bishop and all of those guys. Beardy is not on that list. Where it's like, yeah, well, Beardy's really good at like, you know, well, Beardy knows everything about Bruce Lee, apparently, if you follow his videos, right? And it's not like Beardy is the, like, Carriage and Polly and uh, 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 Little. They're the guys that, you know, like, in the Jesus thing that believe he existed. And, you know, Bishop and these guys are the ones who believe he didn't exist. And so these are competing theories within the Bruce Lee world that can both be argued because each side has legitimate arguments, right? So this, you know, it, like, I, I love to see really smart and knowledgeable people who don't agree on something debate in a productive way. I, I think there's nothing more beautiful than that. People who are really high-level intellectuals and are both experts in a field and disagree on a point. And to watch them go back and forth in a cordial way, I think there's nothing better because that's real discourse. That's a real discussion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is somehow lacking a lot in this world right now. Absolutely. Beardy is not a guy who has an alternative idea about what he thought Bruce Lee's writings meant. Or Beardy is not someone who has a well-founded idea of like, yeah, well, everyone says Jeet Kundo is this. But actually, if you really look at his notes, Jeet Kundo is something entirely different. And then he can argue it using reasoning. And even though maybe the consensus doesn't believe it, but he's enough of an expert to be allowed at the table and say something and people go, well, I might not agree with you, but you have some really interesting points. Beardy is not that guy. He's a fantasist liar who does clickbait videos. And as much as I just, I don't watch his videos, I don't subscribe to him, I think I, I silence his channel because I don't even want his shit coming up on my YouTube algorithm. Like, what do you, like it doesn't matter, but in recent months, apparently he's been amping it up with videos. Months, weeks. To, to, to the point where, like, people are like, yo, you got to say something. And then here comes this thing. Now he's actually calling out by name someone that I know personally, right? Knowing one come along, see, first of all, one Sivu doesn't speak English. So it's not like he's not even going to watch the video. And I'm pretty sure by now one of his students has told him, right? Because Beardy, unfortunately, does have some reach. Um, but we're going to be in Hong Kong for the time of this recording in one month. So maybe if we do see him, I can mention something to him. Or maybe we can even do a short video for the Kung Fu Genius podcast. If, if he will do it, I don't know if he'll do it. No, so it depends on the time. Well, I can ask him about that. And then we could do a one-off uh, where we actually have someone who is a subject of one of Beardy's videos go, uh, yeah, no. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> that would be really awesome. That yeah, I think that's really worthwhile. I think we should do it. Yeah, and that's totally. all I got to say about that. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to subscribe to the Kung Fu Genius. Hit that bell for notifications. And if you have any questions or comments or ideas of things you want me to talk about in a future episode, go ahead and write those in the comments below. Don't forget to support us on Patreon. Don't forget I've written tons of books on Wing Chun, which are awesome. Those are also in the link below. And I'll see you guys next time. Word is a
kung fu genius Technique speaks for me, not lineage Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seekung And I produce masters, you surpassed us Your kung fu stiffer than corpse and caskets City Wing Chung is the house I built Violate the gate and your blood gets spilled Alex Richter, always the victor Is in, after having learned Wing Chun for 25 plus years as I have Occasionally <coughs> Excuse me Dying Excuse of, me, I'm dying right yeah. here. This is it's super embarrassing, everyone. Actually, I uh, <clears throat> choked on my own phlegm. Carry on, stop right there. Okay. Wow, I had tons of space. Apparently. Did that just happen? Yeah, just. Okay. You know what we could do is we could just have Andrew put in a picture of you while you talk for the rest of the episode. What, we're almost done anyway. Yeah. So you could just put in like a stick figure and say Mike Dean while you're talking. Picture Bob Hoskins. Yes, Bob Hoskins. And yeah, let's do that, Andrew. For the remaining part of the video, wherever his video pieced out, just put in Bob Hoskins every time he talks. And it's from YouTube, right? <laughs> so funny. So funny. Yeah, He's funny. YouTube. He's funny. <laughs> This is what happens when you, you, you let tech 